You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I'm going to tell you quickly about a sponsor making today's show possible. And this particular sponsor can also make a better night's sleep possible for you and yours. Our sponsor is Casper. And here's what Casper does. They make an obsessively engineered mattress and offer it at a shockingly fair price. They'll also save you a trip to the mattress store. They're going to send their obsessively engineered mattresses right to your house. You can try it out for 100 days. If you don't like it, you can send it back totally free. But you're going to like it because here's why. It's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. There's two technologies. There's a little bit of latex foam, a little bit of memory foam, and they come together to give you a better night's sleep. Best of all, the prices. They're good. They're like actually fair prices. 500 bucks for a twin, 950 for a king. And if you go to casper.com slash longform, that's casper.com slash longform, and use the promo code longform, you can get 50 bucks off those prices. So go ahead and do it. Give yourself a better night's sleep. Casper.com slash Long form. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello. Just I was just swallowing my coffee. Away from the mic. Yes. Thank that's, you. I've appreciate improved it. my technique seasoned, on that front. Seasoned pro. <laughs> Who, uh, who's, on the, who's on this highly professional podcast this week? This week on the highly professional podcast... Uh, Heaven Nagatu, Tracy Clayton, they are the hosts of Another Round, BuzzFeed's uh, hit podcast. I'm a big fan, and uh, it was really fun to get them on the show. It really is a hit. I'm surprised how many people will talk to me about that podcast. Yeah, they people, listen to that podcast. Uh, people love these two a lot. Yeah. Even people like uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. People such as Hillary Clinton love them. Good episode, uh, that, that one. show is, of course, produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, who edits this show. Hello, Jenna. I just want to say hi to Jenna. Uh, who else do you want to say hi to? Uh, MailChimp. Why? They are a long-term sponsor. They do great things for the email world. If your business sends emails, you should send them through MailChimp. It's free up to, uh, I think, about 1,000 subscribers. So start your list today. Don't even start paying till it takes off. And now here's Max with Tracy Clayton and Heaven Nagatu from Another Round. Tracy. Hey. Hi. What up? Thanks for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Long time listener, first time caller. I, I appreciate your long time listening. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me a little uncomfortable, but I, 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 will, uh, I will deal with it. Here's my idea, speaking of uncomfortable, for what we should do. And you guys tell me if this sounds fine. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk to both of you for a little while, mm-hmm. like about the show and 
all kinds of things about the show and yourselves. And then I'd like to kick one of you out, <laughs> talk to that person. <laughs> I love it. And then kick that person out and bring the other one back I'm in. I'm so into yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this to happen. Me too. Well, we, I, we were excited to have you on, and then we were talking about it, and we were like, have any of you heard either of them without the other one? And we mm. realized that we had not. So that is a theory. Mm-hmm. We're going to break you guys up <laughs> and see if you're uh, whatever the like power force field you have between uh-huh. you maintains if you're on your own. Can I request a, a baby monitor so I can hear heavens and oh my god <laughs> in the waiting room? I'm, I'm, basically, I'm just going to, as soon as the other person walks out, I'm just going to be like, all right, talk shit. Yes. <laughs> so much juice on Tracy. Yes. Oh my gosh. You guys start all these interviews asking, what are you doing? Why? Oh, no. Which is a really good way to start an interview because I'm always like, flustered and trying to figure out what the opening question would be. So I'm going to ask you guys, what do you do and why? I hate this question. I know. <laughs> I hate being on the other end of it. <laughs> do people ask you that a lot? I've only been, we've only been asked it once. Yeah. I was like, shit, they turned the tables on us. I <laughs> was not expecting this for some reason. All right. Well, I'm, I'm interested. Answer the question. Okay. Well, as of now, I guess I'm a podcast host. But like even a few weeks ago or months ago, I probably would just say writer. Mm-hmm. And why do I do it? Because I can. (laughs) I appreciate that in America, you can make fun of everyone freely. That's nice. You guys have a free press. That's cool. (laughs) And I don't know how else to approach life, but mm, making fun of stuff. Yeah. And and podcasting is just a great medium for making fun of people. Mm -hmm. It's like the point. Yeah. (laughs) It's perfect. Uh, What about you? I would still say that I'm a writer, even though I don't write as much as I should or would like to. And if you ask me, I've had writer's block for the past 10 years, but I'm still like, I'm a writer. Um, and also a podcaster. I'm a writer because it's the only thing that I've felt like I was like really good at growing up. And I do the podcasting part because I can. Like The opportunity just presented itself, and I kind of want to like ride the wave until somebody's like, hey, wait a minute, she should not be in a studio. <laughs> I feel like I just kind of like snuck in, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> And also, it's fun. I have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, being paid to just say shit. And drink while we do it? (laughs) What? Come on. Dream job. (laughs) I should say it's like uh, 1230. Do you guys want bourbon? You know, we've we've drunk earlier. (laughs) We have. We have. Because sometimes we record the show earlier, and we're like, we got to keep it in the spirit. Yeah. (laughs) But other times we're like, you know, we got to be adults. Yeah. We drank quite a bit of whiskey last night when we were recording with Wyatt Sinek, who brought us a bottle, which was so nice. And later, we're going to have to get drunk again for another interview. So I'm All going right, to be kind to my liver. Let's take it easy. stick with then. water. That's fine. How did your writing evolve into podcasting? What do you see as the relationship between those two things? Is the voice the same or the topics the same? Like, What are the differences between you as a writer and you as a podcaster? I feel like part of the reason we started is because we were frustrated with how our writing was like landing like if you write about like race or humor on the internet, mm-hmm. especially it's on BuzzFeed, especially it's hard on BuzzFeed. and it doesn't always land well. And it doesn't always find your intended audience. Yeah. Wait, explain all of that. What do you mean land well? <laughs> like BuzzFeed's readers are white and they're also internet people. And that lends to a lot of trolly comments, you know, people who will just read your headline and see this about race and be like, if this had been written about black people, it would be so racist <laughs> and we would not be able to do that. And it would be, Whereas with the podcast, you can be like, even if you don't agree with me, you can like still get the spirit of what I'm saying. You can mm-hmm. get the jokes better. Yeah. Like intonations matter. And like just being able to hear how somebody is saying something to you can like really help inform and like give context and stuff like that. Yeah. But is the audience any different? Yes. Yes. I do think we've really built 
our audience. Mm-hmm. People don't tend to hate listen to podcasts. It takes a lot of energy to listen to 50 minutes of our show and then like write a hate mail thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So do you think it is the white techie people who just aren't assholes who are listening? Or is it a completely different audience than what BuzzFeed is known for and who they typically reach? I feel like the the good white folks listen to our <laughs> podcast. And by good white folks, I mean white folks who, you know, genuinely want to learn more about what it's like growing up as a black woman in America and people who, like, want to be better about challenging their own privilege and their own racism. I think there's occasionally, like, the, the white listener who wants a pat on the back for voluntarily listening oh to God. two black girls for an Not hour. Not just occasionally. That happens a lot. It, it, it happens quite a bit just like yo chill (laughs) yeah but for for the most part like the feedback that we get from white folks is mostly you know I learned so much from you and they love to I love getting um, letters from white folks because it always starts off with hey white guy here (laughs) (laughs) as though you wouldn't know yeah (laughs) it's very obvious (laughs) Um, but I do think also we get a lot of listeners who are like this is the first time I'm listening to a podcast Mm -hmm. so it's a lot of new people to like this this kind of medium I think Mm mm-hmm so in that, in that same respect, like a new BuzzFeed audience. Right, because it, it's still a BuzzFeed thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who do you think you're doing the show for? Definitely people like us. Yeah. I don't ever think about our audience as white. But I guess when thinking about like audience, like when you're talking about like an audience that is like informed by BuzzFeed, like the biggest difference is like what kind of white people you're getting. Because black people for the most part, for the most part, Online, they're like, oh, my gosh, you're talking about black stuff that I get and relate to. This is great. Um, And those black folks are the same ones who listen to our podcast. But the white folks who comment on BuzzFeed articles, I don't think are the ones who are listening to our podcast. Tell me about how the show came to be. I like Kevin's job. I do a bad (laughs) job of this. I had to. I went on another podcast on Monday solo i did um, a podcast called the black guy who tips i was supposed to do it a long time ago and he asked my origin story and i was like oh no where's heaven i don't know i did such a bad job tracy it's such a simple origin story i know i know i just remember it differently and then i start talking anyways and... it's not that deep <laughs> basically it was like we were a very like experimental place so they're like all right we're gonna try podcasts and they were looking at internal talent and they're like well who who's doing interesting things here me and tracy like worked a lot together we collaborated and we we're always kikiing in a corner (laughs) (laughs) so it made sense and i think we both have really strong voices so there was like a little mini pilot season (laughs) there was like five pilots that never aired oh thank god no (laughs) i'm I'm sort of not surprised to hear that because i went back and listened to the first one this morning actually Mm -hmm. and i mean there's some bits that you guys stopped doing but it sounds exactly the same like if you listen to the early episodes of our podcast is a fucking disaster <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you you think that i yeah. feel like we've changed a lot almost yeah i guess maybe i'm thinking mostly of the pilot the pilot was trash yeah, yeah the pilot was just <laughs> i was like jenna wow. do you oh still have this and she's like you know actually i think i deleted it yeah <laughs> like good what, what what was so bad about it we just didn't know what we were doing we had no structure we had no plan <laughs> really like we had like some segment names and it was fun it was funny i remember laughing a lot but i also remember like pausing a lot and being like, "What was I talking about? What are, what are I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing." And it was just, just lots of vomit. <laughs> We've learned structure, is what we're saying. Yes, yes. We've learned a lot about how to structure our show. Do you guys plan it out like uh, extensively before you tape? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just interviews, but like everything. The, everything. Yeah. Do so you basically know where you're going all the time? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like structured chaos. Yeah, like we have a skeleton, and like sometimes it's like, oh, let's grow another finger this way and see what happens. <laughs> Some sort of six fingered hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes sometimes it's cool. we'll create a monster, and sometimes <laughs> it'll be just a chill, normal person. <laughs> and when you guys started, when you when you, you were doing those pilots and you're starting the first show, I mean, it's like an experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Was did, were you thinking this is going to be a quarter of my time? This is going to be half of my time? This is going to be all my time? Like, what what were the ambitions for the show when you started it? I had none because I had no idea like what because I didn't listen to a podcast then. I'm proud to say that I listen to like two now. So (laughs) I'm working on it. But I mean, I had no idea what it took to make a show or what it was supposed to sound like or anything. But I do remember the more that we did it being like, oh, this is like a serious thing that like I need a lot of my time for. I can't just like duck into a closet and talk for an hour and then go back to the rest of my work, which is a thing that I had to explain to many people on my team who were like, okay, yeah, you're doing the podcast. Cool. We still need one post per day from you. And I'm like, wait, this is not gonna work. Did you try (laughs) and keep it up for a little while? and then A little bit, but I was like, listen, you have to decide what you want from me. If you want a bunch of shit, trashy posts just to put up on the internet, I can spend five minutes a day and do that. But if you want me to be good at something, pick the thing that you want me to be good at. Do you miss writing? I do not miss writing for the internet. I do miss it. I mean, there's a lot of stress that comes with it, especially when you're writing about black stuff for a white outlet. But there are like those moments where you write like something that's like really, really funny and really insidery. And of course, you have like the black folks who rightly so, I would say, are like, uh, BuzzFeed is uh, capitalizing on black people without doing this and doing that. No, 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 Which I understand why they would feel that way. I felt that way, too, before I started working for BuzzFeed and I knew like exactly what goes on behind the scenes. But there's also the people who are like, yes, I love this. I love that like I can like see myself reflected in this thing that is like so big and pervasive. And I really like helping to make a space for folks to have that reaction and response. So you miss the reaction and the response, but like, do you worry at all that like those muscles are atrophying? Like if you're not writing all the time that you're going to like kind of forget how to do that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I do. It's still hard, but there are still moments of like me, like journaling. I'm just like, "Mm, this is good. Still got it. That doesn't happen often. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's keep going through the the course of this show. So you guys started what? March of last year. That's crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems like you've been doing it for much longer than that. It feels like, it feels it like that. <laughs> okay, so you, you put out that first episode, and then was there a moment where you guys realized, like, all right, this is, I need to talk to my team, like, this is going to be a thing? I feel like from the beginning, I was like, I really want to do this full time. Mm-hmm. Like, because I listened to podcasts, I definitely had, like, a vision for it. And what was the vision for it? What did, what did you want the show to be? What did you want it to do? I really thought about it, like, almost like a cultural magazine. The examples I give for like equivalence is usually a magazine or like John Oliver's show on HBO, which is like a good mix of like humor, but also like you can tell that like they spend a lot of time investigating or thinking about something, you know, long, serious, deep shit, dumb, random, like unnecessary shit, (laughs) (laughs) petty shit, (laughs) (laughs) human shit. Exactly. That's actually the not surprisingly like a pretty good description of the show and part of what I find really striking about it is this mix of like very heavy and very light like within minutes of each other (laughs) and it's impressive how you guys can move back and forth between those things but also that feels like um, kind of human to me yeah yeah we are humans yeah in the shocking turn of events (laughs) Uh, but but, uh, people who do this are not often humans 
people who do this are sometimes uh, like one very specific thing all the mm-hmm. time. And I think part of what makes the show work is that it's like, you know, some days you are pissed off and angry and mm-hmm. some days you're like loopy and delirious. <laughs> and I feel like all that stuff is reflected on the show. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it feels like, uh, you know, basically just like some representation of who you guys are. And the best example of that, I think, is that Hillary Clinton interview, mm-hmm. which gets into very heavy shit. Mm-hmm. And then like not five minutes later, she's talking about how she's a robot. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that Hillary Clinton interview, which was on like every single best of the year yaka schmaka list of all time. Uh, but deservedly, it was it was fantastic. Her people came to you guys, right? Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that moment when like you get an email from I don't know someone at HillaryClinton.com who's mm-hmm. like, uh, "We want Hillary Clinton to come on your podcast." Yeah. They were actually talking to me for a while about being Hillary Clinton's um, social media strategist. Oh, really? <laughs> Which sounds like a horrible job. <laughs> so I was like, thank you, but no. And so the woman that I've been talking to about that position, she emailed me a while ago. She's like, hey, I want to run something past you. Give me a call. I was like, this is weird. And then I was like, she probably wants Hillary to like come on the show. And I don't remember the particulars, but I mentioned it to either Jenna or Eleanor Kagan, our other producer. And I was like, so I think Hillary wants to do something with it. So like, yeah, we know. We've been we've been talking to him. And they basically were like, you know, we love your show. We love what you do. We want Hillary to be on the show. We want you to ask her the hard questions. We know. They, and they also said they were like, we know that you're not necessarily team Hillary, which is that why we want quote. to. I yeah, remember that. <laughs> absolutely. She was like, that's why we want her on your show. Like, we want you to challenge her, you know. We were like, all right. <laughs> sure. That's like best case scenario for that kind of interview. Absolutely. Where yeah. they go in and they're like, please go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although like, like you get a list of like things that they're not going to talk about and things that you can't say, but they were just like. Everything, everything was fair game. Yeah. And I remember a couple of very, very intense planning meetings. One happened in the hotel bef- the night before in Iowa. Were you guys nervous? Actually, it wasn't until after. Yeah, I didn't get nervous until after it was over. Really? And then I freaked out. I was, I was like, like oh my shit, God. What did we say? What did I say? <laughs> I feel like she hates us now. I didn't feel like she hated us. I, I definitely felt very did. confident that she loved us after the interview. I was just like, she fucking hates us. Do you normally feel bad after interviews or is it just that one? I mean, I didn't feel bad. I was just like, or like I you- almost blacked out a little. I was like, oh, uh, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, like, there were. Like in the moments leading up to the interview, at least for me, there was like this great moment of like anxiety and tension. Like, okay, she's coming up soon. Be present. Be in the moment. Remember all the tips that everyone gave you. Remember your questions. And so then it happens and it's just like a blur and then it's all over. And like whenever you have like a really tense moment of anxiety, like it's a it's a mental thing, but it affects you physically. So like my heart is like racing and like my muscles are tense and I'm just like kind of fidgety. And when it's all over, like I'm just like physically tired, just there's a picture of both of us <laughs> on the floor after that. But like we prepared a lot. We talked a lot with our politics team. We ran mm-hmm. a bunch of shit by them. And in the lead up to it, <laughs> we forgot our liquor. <laughs> 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 and it was like we had there was a town hall and then we were going to interview her afterwards. So we were like, can we leave this town hall and to get some liquor and come back? <laughs> and they're like, no, <laughs> like there's mad security everywhere. Like it would just be technically difficult to like Mm -hmm. do so we're like uh we need liquor Mm -hmm. this is integral to the show (laughs) so one of hillary's people was like i'm gonna get you some liquor Mm -hmm. and then she disappears for like three minutes goes to the hotel next door the hotel bar comes the hotel bar comes with two 
glasses of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I was like, wow, Team like, Hillary yeah, can do Hillary anything. <laughs> just brought us bourbon. Magic bourbon. Yeah. Also, right before the interview, we were just like playing Beyonce. We were just yeah. like... <laughs> they came in and told us to be quiet. They were yes. like, can you just hold it down, please? They're like, there are other people doing interviews <laughs> in the other rooms. Did it feel like the stakes had changed, though? Did you feel pressure with her to ask questions that she hadn't been asked before, maybe in a way that you wouldn't in a normal interview. The moment I'm thinking of is when you asked her directly, like, do you feel responsible mm-hmm. for fucking over black people? Yeah. Um, in that moment, I knew that I really wanted to press her on that point because I felt like I knew what she was going to say. And I just really wanted to not let her off the hook, but also let her shitty answer speak for itself. So it was it, a pretty shitty answer. It was. You know, well, Al Sharpton did. You know. <laughs> Maybe we should just take a second and uh, we can just listen to that clip. Mm-hmm. And then we'll come back and talk about it. Nice. Look at you queuing up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My question to you is, do you ever look at the state of black America today? We can focus on the prison system for now. And regardless of what the intents were, like I know that the 90s were like it was a different time. You know, times change, legislation changes, needs change. But regardless of your intent, do you ever look at the state of black America and say, wow, we really fucked this up for black people? Well, I'll tell you what I think. And my husband has spoken to this. He spoke about this at the NAACP just last summer. You always have to learn from what you do. I was interviewed by Al Sharpton the other day, and I've known him a long time because I represented New York. And he said, and I think it's good to be reminded of this, that in the 90s, and particularly when my husband became president, there was a great demand not just from America writ large, but from the black community to get tougher on crime. And Al Sharpton said this. He said, I was one of those people who was asking that we get tougher on crime and that we clean up our neighborhoods and we stop gangs from killing each other. And he said, I was, you know, going around boarding up crack houses. And he said, so we can't go back and say that we didn't ask that a lot of this be done because we did. Okay, yeah, that's a really shitty answer. So here's, <laughs> here's my question. is what, what was the look on her face when you asked? Like, did she crack at all when you asked that question? No. I mean, I feel like she handled it like a politician. You know, you hear the question and you spin your answer and that's it. I believe that she's a very good politician mm-hmm. and has very good answers and that that was a bad answer. Yeah. Like, that felt to me like an answer to a different question yeah, or definitely. a fumbly answer to that question because yeah. she hadn't been asked that question Yeah, you could definitely before. tell that. Yeah, she, it, I mean, you threw her. I did. <laughs> Do it again, too. But she, but, but, I mean, you can't quite hear, you can't quite see it when yeah. you're listening to it, what her reaction is. She, she seems like tense and awkward in a way that she isn't in, in mm-hmm. basically at any other point in the interview or even like really on the campaign trail all that mm-hmm. often. Like, you know, it was like the most flustered I've heard her, I think. Yeah. I mean, physically, there weren't like she didn't like she didn't go like start rubbing her hands together, or, like <laughs> blinking rapidly or anything. Like there were no physical tales. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know. I definitely left feeling like she's even better at her job than I thought. Yeah, she's very good at her job. Did it make you guys part of Team Hillary? No, no. <laughs> I'm Team No One. <laughs> um, but yeah, Team Heaven. <laughs> yes, Kanye 2020. <laughs> VP me. Um, I went in there thinking the big challenges of this interview is one, just time. We didn't have that much time with her mm-hmm. and we we're like, we just have to get, we have to make sure our questions are precise. We need to know what we're going and asking because it'll be like 
10 minutes and she'll have answered like one question you right. know yeah. right. politician speak yeah and once in a while like a, yeah she'd give us the like i i knew a woman in montana who <laughs> you know like and i'm just like ma'am please don't do this <laughs> i do not want to hear about that woman in yeah. Montana. <laughs> but for the most part she was very present yeah and i could tell she was listening mm-hmm. yeah i wonder if she's like that all the time i mean i wonder if that's like what being a good politician i think is. she is i think she's really good at it well that was a great interview Thanks. Thank you. Good work by you guys on that interview. I thought. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. It's nice to have that under your belt because when people ask me, I do. They're just like, "All right, a podcast." Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Oh. It's like, yeah. Uh, we interviewed Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, I'm sure, right? It's like, it's like uh, now you guys can sort of say that to anyone you want on the show. It's like, well, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. Yes. Yeah. So. When he starts to say, "Very helpful," I interviewed Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> so, who do you want to interview now? Who Who's on the like wish list? Who are the people that you're desperate to get? Oh, so many. Yeah. Why won't people return my emails? (laughs) Any of the Obamas, specifically Malia. We would love to be really like trying to get the first, first Malia interview. interview. We went and interviewed Valerie Jarrett at the White House. Did you like uh, like leave a note somewhere? Just like try and slip a note under a door. We didn't want to get shot. <laughs> we so did not no. approach any unknown doors that did <laughs> yeah. not happen. <laughs> um, but we did drop some hints. You know, like hey, tell her. Yeah. yeah. Emily Collins. Kanye. Kanye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He interviews with like the same four dudes, so I don't, it's, it's a long shot, but he's mm-hmm. doing press right now for his new album. Um, I want to interview all my crushes because I feel like that's the only way I'll ever get within five feet of them. Who's on that list? Um, Andre 3000, The Rock, President Obama. <laughs> Please call me, any and everyone. I really want to interview Colbert. Yeah. How that's come? A big us. He's a really good interviewer. And he is so smart. He is very smart. And yeah, I feel like he's influenced me a lot. I also want to interview Beyonce, but I feel like we need to become best friends first so that she'll like <laughs> let her guard down and like actually be herself. So really what you want to do is just become friends. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> it. That's, a, that's understandable. Fuck yeah. the interview. Let's just be friends. Let's <laughs> just hang out. Um, and what about the show? I mean, where, what do you guys want from the show? Where does it go? How does it evolve? Where does it like, are you guys going to end up being on TV? How does this work? Um, well, one of the advantages of being at BuzzFeed is that it's a multimedia firm. So there are a lot of different things that we can do. We're thinking of doing more web video stuff, and who knows where that will go. Um, as far as like what I want for the podcast or where I see it going, I didn't even see myself in this position at all. So I have no idea. <laughs> it just seems like a really wild and unpredictable ride still. And part of me is like, yeah, you know, eventually they'll be like, eh, we're over it. It's done. Yeah. I want our podcast to be the place people go when they're like, oh, I have things to say. And I want to be interviewed by people who give me fair and smart questions, mm-hmm. but won't be too like pressy. Like it's not just some press junket I'm doing or some shit. Mm-hmm. So you, you basically like want to carve out that real estate for the show, which is yeah. like it's getting there already. Yeah, I think so. but it's not quite like on every PR person's radar to be like, you have to do this. This is the premier cultural spot. You did interview Hillary Clinton. I know, I know. (laughs) But some PR people are like, what's a podcast? (laughs) Still still working on that. Yeah, or they'll pitch us like the biggest nobodies in the world. Charles Junction has a new book about birds (laughs) driving cars. (laughs) I'd be so into that book though. (laughs) You know what? I'd interview a bird, sure. I have some other process questions, and then we're going to separate you guys. Okay. And I'm going to ask you uh, to talk shit about the other one. Got it. How do you handle interviewing together? It seems really hard to me. Like, do you guys have a game plan? Do you think about your roles on the show clearly? Is that something you talk about? Or is it all just kind of like, 
figure it out as it goes. It's going to happen naturally. I feel like since we sort of formulate all the questions together, like these are things that I'm interested in and these are things that I want to ask and kind of combine them, we then sort of just work off of the same Google Doc. And then as far as the actual interview itself, you know, a lot of times it's just like jumping in when you get a chance, which I feel like I'm really bad at. Like sometimes I feel like you're better at it. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, but I also just don't think I'm a good interviewer, though. So there's oh, here we go. There's that. <laughs> I, mean, I have a lot of like you know self confidence things. How do you think of your roles in the show? I don't know. I feel like Tracy's the funny one, the reliably funny one. I'm not reliably funny. <laughs> you ha- Once in you a while, I have my moments. <laughs> Tracy's the reliable funny one. So I'm like, oh, it's a very heavy topic. We got to get some Tracy segments in here. <laughs> and I feel like Kevin's a lot better at being vocally intellectual. Like I said before, I don't consider myself a good speaker. And a lot of times I put a lot of pressure on myself to like sound like smart and intelligent. And that's actually a thing that I have a complex about. You know, I'm like, do people just think that I'm just like here to like giggle in the corner? Like, do they know that I'm smart too? But that's crazy also, to me. Hey, listen, no, guys, that's allowed. I am Speak human. your truth. Speak your truth. These <laughs> are <laughs> just like my internal fears. No, I hear you. I hear you. But um, I do think that that's why the show works though. Because like when you like combine the two of us, you have like a full like power interviewer. Yeah. Can, like, you can like take away the parts. Smart yeah. And be funny and smart, you know? Yeah. You can cut the fat from the fat wall. Yeah. Like, so we don't get my direction, which is just nobody cares about this heaven. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't go too far, like, I don't know what too far Tracy's direction is. Tracy can go way left. Let's do an entire interview (laughs) with a bird (laughs) (laughs) for 10 minutes. Oh my gosh, I would love to interview a parrot. With no structure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we, we both keep each other closer to the center. Yeah. Is it ever hard to collaborate? I don't think so. I don't feel like it's hard. And it doesn't even really feel like those are Tracy's questions or those are my questions. We don't feel like proprietary about the things we've come up with. Or who gets to ask what. Yeah. Seems very healthy. Yeah. I I like to think so. (laughs) We have a great working relationship. It's the only healthy relationship. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) This is turning into therapy. (laughs) All right. Now now we're going to separate you guys. (laughs) And you're going to say shit about each other. And this is all all this like warm fuzziness is going to fall apart. (laughs) All right. I'm going to use this break to tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. And I'm going to start with a question. It might be a question you've had on your mind. What if there is an easy way for your corporate communications department to share company news? Whether it's a new onboarding process, info about the upcoming merger, or changes to the company benefit plan, what if your employees could find all the information they needed in one unified space? What if you could finally break down silos and share information more efficiently? Sometimes cultural shifts start with technological ones, and that's what Igloo is. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a way for your team to get organized, communicate. It's easy to use and easy to set up. You can learn more and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash longform. That's igloosoftware.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week, our friends at Squarespace. And maybe you're not in the market for a corporate communications intranet because you're a team of one. Maybe you're like a freelance writer and you've been writing for publications all over the web, all this great stuff, but it needs a central home. You need a personal website. Maybe it's even been like uh, sitting on your to-do list for months. Build personal website. Build personal website. Build personal website. It has been bothering you for months. You have not gotten around to do it. Squarespace is the way 
to get it done. It's super simple. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything's drag and drop. They've got these beautiful templates that look great on any device. If you hit a snag, you won't, but if you do, they've got 24-7 customer support. The whole process is super easy. Best of all, you can go try it right now. No credit card required. Build that site you're interested in. If you do decide to sign up, it's just eight bucks a month. And if you use the offer code LONGFORM, so you go to squarespace.com, sign up, you build your site, you're into it, you want to pay for the $8 a month, use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Sign up for a year and you'll get a free domain name. It's a good deal from our friends at Squarespace. That website you've been meaning to build, you should. Okay, here's Tracy Clayton. Tracy. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, dun. This is so weird. I, I'm not convinced that this idea is going to work, but we're going to try it anyway. I'm excited to see the, the outcome. Okay. To hear the outcome. Right? All right. I would like to learn a little bit more about you okay. personally. I'm an open book for With, the most part. Without heaven. Okay. I think I can do this. How did you land in New York and land at BuzzFeed? I consider it just like this insane whirlwind of accidental things that just happened to end up in something really, really awesome. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I'm from, born and raised. And I was working at the time for theroot.com. I think before that I had been freelancing after I had gotten laid off from an awful desk job at an architecture firm. Um, What were you doing at the architecture firm? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't. Like emailing stuff, putting stuff together, making mistakes because I didn't care about the job. and Hating lots of people in the office. Yeah, yeah. Um, So got laid off from there. It was one of the best days of my life when I got laid off from the job. It was amazing. Started freelancing for a while, and through freelancing, I became acquainted with some people who worked at TheRoot.com. And they hired me to be what was called their Chatterati editor. And this is like at the the beginning of like the the dawn of black Twitter. And everybody's like, oh, black people are using Twitter. What does this mean? Can we interview you for this and that and that and that and that? And what The Root wanted to do was sort of um, make this thing that would sort of like aggregate the best black Twitter tweets. And since I tweeted all the time anyway, I was perfect for the job. So I was like, y'all going to pay me to tweet? Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, I'll do this. Where were you living? It was my first apartment in Louisville, first and only to date. It was gorgeous. Like, the cost of living in Louisville is one of the most beautiful, like, uh, every time I pay my rent up here, I cry (laughs) a little bit. It was this huge, bi-level, two-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath, just, like, big for $739. And it was Sounds awesome. It was gorgeous. And so since I was only working part-time for The Root, but since the cost of living down there is so low, like I could like pay my rent and feed myself. Right. And it was really, really awesome. So I would work half a day and then I would basically spend the rest of the day either walking around and like trying to write and getting frustrated and saying, fuck it, I'm not going to do it anymore. What did you want to be writing? At like the core of my heart is still like prose and fiction. Like I still want to write like the next great American novel. I heard that you already wrote a novel. Oh my God, who have you been talking to? <laughs> <laughs> I did. It's terrible. What's it called? It is called In the Body of Trees. I wrote it when I was living in Philadelphia for, um, it was during the month of November during National Novel Writing Month. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a novel. And to make sure that I was going to do it, I took a supplementary course at Temple University where like we would just get together. It was like 100, 200 bucks or something. And we would get together a couple days a week and just like write because the daily word count was like 1,600 words or something. And I had this, um, a short story that I had written 
which is one of the few things I've ever written that I actually like and would actually show other people if I had to. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll just take this story and expand on it and just like make it a novel. And um, I was the only one in the class that actually like finished the whole thing and like met the word count. And we had to read a portion of it aloud on the last day. And after the class that my teacher was like, you know what, you're really, really good. And I was like, oh, well, thank you. She was like, no, like Toni Morrison good. And I was like, you better watch <laughs> the ease with which you throw that name around, madam. That is huge. Um, but it's it's not good. I mean, it's, you, it's just like a lot of filler. Like I have to meet the word count or whatever. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there are like big chunks where I would just like start journaling in the middle of it because I was like, because notes that you made while you were writing count towards the road, towards the word count. Right. So I'd be like, uh, I don't know what else I should write here to make the word count. It's <laughs> so frustrating. And then the next paragraph is in like she walked briskly down the you know, it's bad. It's bad. So when you write your next novel, mm-hmm. then like they'll publish that one later as like the if you want more from Tracy Clinton, here's her I hope not. I've hid <laughs> it from myself. And my mother's very upset because I refuse to let her read it. And she's like, just let me read it and I'm like, Nope. Anyway, Tell I'm in Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, BuzzFeed had been hiring a lot of black writers. And by a lot, I literally mean two. They had hired two writers. I can't remember who the first one was. Well, But they did it in like a close time frame. So mm-hmm. like people started to notice. The second person hired was Joel Anderson, who also relocated from the South. And that spurned the hashtag Black BuzzFeed on Twitter. And it was just like a bunch of people making up like black articles that... Like, eventually, like, BuzzFeed is going to hire so many black people that all the articles are going to be about, like, Martin and, like, living single, you know. And, like, it lasted maybe an entire day. Mm -hmm. And I had so much fun. I had so much fun making up these ridiculous BuzzFeed titles. And eventually people were like, oh, man, Tracy, they're going to steal your titles and, like, really make these for real. You better, like, send in an application, blah, blah, blah. And, like, people started adding BuzzFeed and, like, hey, you need to hire Tracy. And I was like, oh, yeah, so cute. And this all happened, like, over the course of a day. Yeah, a day or two. Um, and then eventually I got a um, a DM from Saeed Jones, who is now the culture editor at BuzzFeed. And he was like, no, really, what if you came to work at BuzzFeed? And I was like, ha, 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 you silly. And he was like, no, seriously. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I remember at the time my grandmother was getting sick and we were we had just started toying with the idea of putting her in a nursing home. And um, my mom, I think, had had her fourth eye surgery. And at the time, I was just thinking about how happy I was to be so close to home and my family when everybody needed something. And so the thought of me, like, picking up and moving 700 miles away, I was like, it's ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. Also, I was 30. I had this great apartment. You know, I had a little boo at the time. And I you were set like, up. Yeah, I was good. I was I was in nesting mode. And I was just, like, ready to, like, be there forever and, like, start having babies and stuff. So I responded and I was like, "Um, I'm interested, but relocation is not on the table at all. He was like, well, let me let me just put you in touch with an editor of ours so you can talk. And he put me in touch with Lisa Tazi, who was working on the breaking news team, who I love so much. She helped me to buy my first winter coat in New York. (laughs) (laughs) And so we talked back and forth. And then they were like, oh, just come up for, you know, to see the office and have uh, you can meet with Jonah Peretti and you can meet with Ben Smith. And in my head, I'm like, it's going to be really sad for me to tell them no after they're being so nice to me and flying me up there because I was just like, I'm not going to move. It's just ridiculous because I've never, ever, ever wanted to live in New York. I'm not like one of those people who had dreams of like moving to the big city and like being in the middle of all of it. I think that it's a great place to visit, but living is expensive for one. For sure. 
and expensive for two. Like, <laughs> those are my biggest qualms about New York. Has it charmed you at all? I have moments where I will allow myself to say that I understand why people love the city so much. That's very gracious of you. Yeah, yeah. But I, um, to steal my friend and coworker, Joel Anderson's term, I consider myself a Southern supremacist. So I will <laughs> never be like, oh, man, this place full of Yankees is great. You know, like, I'm, I'm just too prideful for that. <laughs> But um, they brought me up. Everybody was really, really nice. Um, I met Heaven for the first time at a little dinner that they had for me of just like random writers and editors there. And I talked to Ben Smith. We had a very awkward lunch. <laughs> Why was it awkward? I don't know. I mean, I didn't know a whole lot about BuzzFeed and like I didn't under- fully understand like the position that he held at BuzzFeed. But I knew that he was like somebody, you know, mm-hmm. I knew that this was like a big deal. And so I'm just like there and I'm trying to be like funny and witty and we were eating pizza that wasn't very good. And I didn't want to be like, ugh, this is gross. I'm not going to eat it. So I'm like (laughs) choking down this horribly dry pizza. And it was just very, it was interviewee, but there was also like this subtext of like, you know, we should be relaxed and like chill right now. So I'm like trying to relax and chill and then it just it was just weird. It seems like a kind of weird position to be in, it to was be like a, to be there and not want the job. Yes, I think you really encapsulated why it was so weird. Because like the whole time he's like talking to me and he's like, oh, you know, I love this thing that you do. You're so great. We would love to have you. And like trying to sell me on the company. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But in my head, I'm like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. He also looked through my phone during that lunch, which is a story that I like to tell, because I mentioned that you know oh, I have so many ideas during the day, and there's a list that I keep in my phone of good ideas, so I don't forget. And he was like, oh, can I see it? No, excuse me? <laughs> uh, that's my list. Can you what? And I'm just so glad that I was not lying. Because <laughs> otherwise I'd have been like, uh, n- n- no, my phone, my battery's dead. Sorry. So um, how did they convince you to take the job? Ben Smith was very persistent. And I was like, listen, I just got too much going on down here. I can't move. I can't move. I can't move. And he was like, well, what if you either moved to New York and you went home all the time to visit or you worked in Louisville and you were just in New York all the time? And I was like, yeah, I live in Louisville and be in New York all the time. It'll be great. I'll be making New York money and paying Louisville rent. That's wonderful. Yeah. And then he was like, well, we would really like to have you in New York because, you know, the you can collaborate better and this, that, and the other. Da, 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 da. And finally he was like, you know what? If you come up and you don't like it, you can always move home. And I, I didn't have an argument against that. I was like, you know, I, it's just me. You know, I had a... A guy that I was seeing, but I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. So if I came up and couldn't feed myself, at least I wouldn't be arrested by, like, CPS for <laughs> having little starving kids that I couldn't feed. <laughs> so finally I was like, all right, I'm going to go up. I'm going to give it six months. I'm going to turn around and come back. And that'll be it. And two years later, I am opposite you at this table, still in New York. Do <laughs> you think you're going to stick it out? Yeah. One of the things that I've learned in life is that, you know, plans don't mean very much. I never saw myself doing anything related to like speaking aloud like a podcast and you know there have been moments in my life where I just knew that this is what was going to happen and this is what I wanted and this is what I was going to make happen and then it's like somebody picked up the snow globe of my life and just like shook it and everything just went all over the room and it's like well I guess I start over with another plan or do I just sit back and like kind of like take it day by day and see if this particular tributary leads out to this lake or this ocean or this stream so does it make you anxious to not have a plan? Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I hate not knowing what's going to happen to me. 
I also have um, anxiety disorder, which I talk about a lot, and that is like the root of 75% of my anxiety. I also don't have any respect for the journey. Like people like to say, oh, you know, the the best part of getting there is the journey and you learn so much and blah, blah, blah. No, I just want to get there. <laughs> you know, I want this thing to happen. I want to push this button and then I want to be there. So is that that is that like a constant tension? You're sort of like trying to embrace this idea where you're going to mm-hmm. just follow these different paths and yes. wherever the... Uh tributaries take you right whatever i said i don't remember yeah but But at the same time uh you'd really like to know yeah the end result i am at constant war with myself (laughs) (laughs) it's tough i feel like i i have uh a little bit of access to this constant war that Mm -hmm. you have with yourself because you're incredibly open about the war going on in yourself all Mm -hmm. the time you tweet all the time about when you are feeling depressed or anxious Mm -hmm. it's very public you've talked about on the show you've written about it on the site why put that out there it just helps me feel less alone with the things that I'm going through because one of the things about anxiety and depression is that they're so common they're Mm -hmm. so common like you can probably like throw a stone in any room that you're in and it'll hit somebody who is struggling with the same thing but it's just a thing that we don't talk about it makes me feel better that my story and me telling my story helps other people because that means that it's worth something to like have these 33 years of just like rolling around and and just like anguish. And a lot of times like when I tweet, like little self-care messages or like a pep talk is because I'm having a shitty day and these are things that I need to hear. So chances are somebody else somewhere needs to hear them too. And you also wrote about a lot of this in this essay for BuzzFeed. Mm Mm-hmm which I uh, think people should go read, Mm. which is called uh, When Taking Anxiety Medication is a Revolutionary Act. And Mm -hmm. basically what you're saying in that story over and over again is like, if you can put a name to how you're feeling Mm -hmm. and if you can share that name with other people, it has an effect on how you're feeling. Yes. And it makes it feel uh, exactly what you're just saying, Mm -hmm. like less alone. Uh, You realize how common it is. You realize like it's an actual like physical thing. Yeah. Not some like character flaw. Mm -hmm. It feels so open to me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I met for the first time today. Well, actually, we met once before. <laughs> Supposedly. And you nagged me super hard. But uh, <laughs> today we we're meeting really for the first time. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I n- know you yeah. pretty well. In fact, I like know things about you that I don't know about people I've known for years. <laughs> right. So what do you keep for yourself? That's a good question. I keep my loved ones to myself. I don't follow or friend any of my family members on Twitter or on Facebook. I don't vomit all of, like, my struggles that include, like, other people or other members of my family to an extent. Um, Like, actual, like, real trauma or um, things that I just know, like, a cousin or someone wouldn't want to put out there. You know, I keep that between us. I don't friend my family on Facebook because, like, I'm so paranoid. This is from the anxiety of, like, some crazy Internet person, like, finding my family through me and, mm-hmm. like, somehow exposing them or putting them in any kind of danger. It's I, funny that you say that because mm-hmm. just listening to the show and also, like, reading through your stuff and your tweets and everything, mm-hmm. your mom, <laughs> I just want to know more about your mom. <laughs> She's amazing. What is she like? Is, um, she's a lot like me. We um, butt heads because we're so much alike. She's about five one, maybe. She's a tiny woman, just full of fire and terror. And she, she's kind to a fault to people that she loves and even people that she doesn't know. She'll give you the shirt off her back. But if you ever pose a threat 
to her babies or her mom or like her family, then RIP you. Um, <laughs> she's hilariously funny. She um, is also a very talented writer, even though she doesn't write anymore. Um, when I was little, I found a journal of poetry that she had written and um, like handwritten. It was beautiful, like this gold leaf, unruled line journal. It was so beautiful. I used to want to be a poet when I was little. Um, I didn't take poetry completely, but um, I just I just wanted to be her. I just wanted to be like her. And her existence just like made me feel so protected like even when like I got older and I started learning what racism was and sexism was and when I understood that I'm gonna have a really hard and shitty time on this earth looking at my mom and seeing her standing you know sometimes with battle scars but still standing it's like okay there's no question that I can also do this she's my best friend she She seems very present for you like you just talk about her all the time mention her a lot I haven't noticed that until recently she listens to the pack the podcast and speaking of things that I keep to myself it is physically impossible for me to talk about sex on the show because I know that she <laughs> listens and that's just not that's not the kind of relationship we've ever totally had. It totally stopped you from talking about sex. I would talk about it a lot more. <laughs> I enjoy talking about sex and I think that I do it in a very interesting way but I just can't just knowing that she could potentially hear that her daughter is maybe not a virgin anymore at 33. <laughs> it's just like no, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. Do you want to talk about sex now? Your mom's not going to listen to this. So. I mean, she might. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> She's ruining this for all of us. <laughs> All right. So when you think about what you keep for yourself, it's mm-hmm. it's the people in your life. And, yeah. and, you know, you're out there and you're very public, but it doesn't necessarily and shouldn't sort of extend to them. Yeah. The other kind of question I have along those lines is just, again, like I, I'm meeting you today. Mm-hmm. I don't know you very well, but I've listened to you talk for like hours <laughs> and I've read all of this incredibly kind of intimate, raw, emotional stuff that you've put on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And those two people... Just as a like a just just a guy, I'm just a guy <laughs> talking to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, feel like really different people. Or, really? Well, not not really different people, but on the show, like I find you to be like hilarious <laughs> and super like confident <laughs> and not stressed. You, you do not sound stressed on the show. That's amazing. Does that not ring true to you? I'm stressed all the time. But you say on the <laughs> show like you are kind of like a. Uh, just sort of like, it sounds like you're just kind of like having a great time. Yeah. Well, I am having a great time. And I guess I do feel very confident when I'm in the studio. I feel very supported. You know, I'm with a team that I respect and a team that I love. And one of my good friends is across the table from me. And it's also not completely about me. Like, we go into the studio and we talk about other things. But um, this is actually the most in-depth interview that I've ever had with somebody else. And... Um, I'm very conscious of myself and like what I'm saying in a way that I'm not when I'm in the studio to like make a fun show. I don't know. I guess I feel a little more naked being across the <laughs> uh, on the other side of the the table. Does another round feel like a performance? No, it doesn't feel like a performance at all. It really, literally feels like I'm just sitting down with a friend over a glass of bourbon. And I agree. I think that's why the the show works. You know, there's no. Um, sound that we're going for there's no no structure that we're trying to follow which is good because again like I know very little about podcasts and podcasting I think that's a good thing I think it is too I think it is too I think it's it's, helpful yeah and it's awesome that like I'm literally getting paid to be myself so it doesn't feel like a performance I mean I'm more driven to be entertaining in the studio because you know it's a it's a form of entertainment so do you guys get paid more now (laughs) um we're 
working on it. <laughs> that's all I'll say. You must um, have a little leverage now. A little bit. A little bit. We do have some leverage. I, I think it's coming. I think that BuzzFeed is finally realizing, like, what they have on their hands. And um, in a few meetings, I was like, listen, you get out of us what you put into us. What would you describe as what they have on their hands? It's something very rare and unique. It is something that, you know, if money is your goal and focus, you can get a lot out of it. Because I feel like other people and companies and corporations are starting to realize, like, the value of the show and its popularity and the fact that it serves such an underserved market and like very like an unseen market even because like black folks black women in particular and women of color like we are silenced in almost every arena we are barely visible because we're not seeing ourselves reflected back like we have no representation and i feel like the popularity of this show and other black podcasts like um the read and the black guy who tips and black girl nerds the bigger they become and the more noise they make the more people notice them and they're like, hmm, black people like podcasts. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like they have a, a chance to um, to really show that they care about things like this and that they want to help us continue building um, a kind of safe haven that is primarily a thing that we look at as a service and not like just like a job or a means to make money because we're not making a lot of money now. <laughs> so that's obviously not why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. But um. Yeah, this is this could be a really, really huge thing. And I hope that it will be. I think it already is. Yeah, I do too. But <laughs> huger. It could be huger. Huge, more huge. More hugest. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. This was fun and a little bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to get heaven in and ask her all the same questions. Um, she's not as open as I am, so it should be very interesting. She's going to get mad. <laughs> All right, Heaven, uh, <laughs> while you were waiting outside, mm-hmm. Tracy said all kinds of terrible things about I you. I don't doubt it. It was it was ugly. Oh, it was, she would never. It was rough. So if you <laughs> want to get stuff off your chest, now's the time. She makes horrible puns, but we all know this. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I feel like uh, I just sat with her for half an hour and like I did not let her be funny once. What? I feel like she's always funny. I mean, she is always funny, but it, I was just like, tell me about pain. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm interested in how you got to this place uh, that you are currently in. You are how old? I'm 24. 24. That's um, absurdly young. It is. I try not to bring it up, honestly. <laughs> you don't want to talk about it? No, no, no. I, I'm fine with talking about it, but in just like in conversation. Okay. So you started BuzzFeed when? About three years ago. So like right out of college? I took a year off college and just like interned a bunch, worked a bunch. Went back, but then never finished. But I mostly was like interning and nannying in New York City. Didn't you never finished? Mm-mm. How close are you to finishing? One semester. Really? Yeah. Do you think you'll finish? No. You don't think you're ever gonna go back? No. Huh. Fuck Columbia University. <laughs> First of all, you you want to know some shit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would like to know um, some um, shit. I was on the thirty under thirty list, which is a thing. People, I didn't. Is I that knew also it was something a thing. You don't normally bring into conversation. I do not. <laughs> But you, we've been talking for 30 seconds. <laughs> I was on the 30 under 30 list. No, no, no. So the Columbia Alumni Association emailed me. They put it all on their website and they put it like an arbitrary, not an arbitrary, like around the year I would have graduated date on there. And I was like, this is false. These are lies. <laughs> and I hate you all. Take it down. <laughs> Why do you hate Columbia so much? When I was applying for colleges, I remember people were saying like Columbia is a bureaucratic school. 
I didn't know what that meant. I just assumed all colleges, you know, to some degree are bureaucratic. Sure. But it did really feel like I was just a number or a liability while I was there. Is your uh, certainty about not finishing college, does that have more to do with Columbia or do you just kind of think like it doesn't matter? Um, no, I really desperately tried to finish. But especially knowing some of the reasons I have to go back would be for like some horrible core classes that, you know, I should have done like freshman year or sophomore year. I just cannot do it. <laughs> I can't do it. I wonder if like in this day and age, whether that will ever matter. Yeah, I remember at the time our editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, was like, you don't need to do this. <laughs> He's like, half my news team doesn't have a degree. You're good at your job. And I was like, I appreciate that, Ben, but my parents did not come to America <laughs> for me to not finish my education. <laughs> yeah, how do your parents feel about that? They don't know I'm not going to finish. I think it's, they still think it's a possibility. Hmm. But I think they've also gotten used to the idea that I know what I'm doing. I'm sure that's right. Like, I think they worry about me less, basically. What are your parents like? Overprotective immigrant parents, very typical. <laughs> and they're in Virginia? Yeah, I grew up in, I, I grew up in, I was born in Ethiopia, but I grew up mostly in the northern Virginia, D.C. area. When did you arrive in Virginia? When I was five. Like, just when you're learning the solid foundations of, like, language and grammar. Do you remember Ethiopia at all? I do. Mostly from pictures, though. Mm-hmm. My, my memory's not great. Okay, so you have a semester to go at Columbia, yeah. and you're like, ah, fuck that. I just that. can't do it. Not I tried. It. I just couldn't do it. Basically, from there, you were at BuzzFeed? I was interning at SNL and a fellow at BuzzFeed at the same time. At SNL? Yeah. I don't know why they let me do that, <laughs> but they did. Did you I'm want grateful. to be doing comedy stuff? All of my work before BuzzFeed was mostly like TV film stuff. Huh. So that was definitely the trajectory I was thinking about. Why'd you go with BuzzFeed? I mean, I was also interested in media, but I liked that they were like experimenting with a bunch of shit. And they have the attitude of like the opposite of a legacy media company, which is like, we don't have a history to be like, well, this is how we always do it. So you can really try a bunch of stuff there. And I have in my time there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like three years ago, that's kind of like almost BuzzFeed early days. It is. <laughs> it really is. What was What was BuzzFeed like three years ago? A lot smaller. <laughs> it was a little more like ragtag, <laughs> and now we're more of like a a large organization. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I feel like there's still like, um, you know, there's kind of this like BuzzFeed mafia on the internet, I feel like. Like every time- Whoa, Buzz- what is that? <laughs> well, I feel like every time BuzzFeed like does a big story, like that tennis racket, mm. which is a really good headline yeah. investigation, like every single person I know on the internet who is connected to BuzzFeed was like pushing that thing. It yeah. was like a, it was like a full effort, and I feel like there's this spirit of it that's kind of like um, underdoggy. Yeah, definitely. Except BuzzFeed won. We're still, I guess, in Jonah's mind, a startup. I think people on the outside assume everyone's just like in a happy cult. <laughs> I am the least happy person, <laughs> <laughs> or not? I mean, like um, that you have to be like chipper. Yeah. I'm not a chipper human. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have like your chipper moments? Pretty chipper that's, on the show. Yeah, I work at it. <laughs> well, that, I, that's actually something I was kind of just talking to Tracy about. Is like, how performative do you feel like the podcast is? Like, how close is that? I know the spirit of the show is like, yeah. it's just like hanging out with your friends. Yeah. But how is that really what you're like when you're hanging out with your friends? It's definitely performative for me, especially. I think I'm way more reserved. Certainly not laughing all crazy every day. (laughs) I do really think 
people do get this impression that we're just like who we are on the podcast. And I'm like, all right, let's take a step back a little. <laughs> we don't know each other. First of all, there's like that intimacy thing where people think they really know you. Like we've had like 10 hours of conversation already. It's like, nope, just met you. Nope. But for them on their end, it is like that. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the feeling I want. That's what we actively work on on the show is to make it feel like a conversation. So what's the gap? What's the difference between like a... Uh... IRL heaven and another round heaven. I think I'm less fun, honestly. (laughs) I really actively work on being funner for the show. (laughs) It's like, was I peppy enough, guys? What do you like about doing the show? I never take for granted the platform. So it matters to me that we're like calling out things when we see them or like talking about doing like lightweight media criticism or talking about things that people aren't talking about. Like that shit's important to me. And do you think it's having an impact? I do. I hear more from media people these days. They're like, you talk about race so well or effectively. I'm like, well, one thing we're doing is trying really hard. Have you thought about that? (laughs) Have you considered effort? Yes. (laughs) What do you mean? What does that look like? What does the trying really hard look like? So it's like we make a concerted effort to make our show diverse, even though it's already diverse enough by just having the two of us. Like that's already different from like literally every podcast. Not all, but, you know, a vast majority. (laughs) And then we, like, make a concerted effort to be like, all right, what kind of guests are we having? What kind of topics are we talking about? Are we doing too much personal and not enough macro? Like, we think about it a lot. I often get asked to do, like, diversity panels and shit, and I cannot emphasize enough, like, how much I tell people to try. (laughs) So when I ask people, I'm like, okay, well, how do you think about diversity at your insert whatever place they work? And they don't have to have the answers, but you can tell when they have the blankest face that they haven't even thought about it. That's what I mean by literally just try. Think of things and sit down in a meeting and talk about it. (laughs) And then have actionable items where you go out and do stuff. I feel like a little patronizing saying that, but honestly, I feel like that basic effort is not always being taken. Do you think that's because people don't feel like they need to? It's not like uh, people go in being like, our things that we write about are only for white people. I think they think what they're doing applies to everyone. Do you think people are getting better about it? I'm not an optimistic person. (laughs) No pep, no optimism. (laughs) You know, I really can't say that it's getting better. I think more people are talking about it openly or more people are feeling emboldened. But for the most part, it's like a sad state of affairs still. Certainly, but... The question is whether their trajectory is in, like, moving at all. I don't know. You got to ask your white editors that. <laughs> <laughs> my white editors? Not your your media peers. Oh, my, my white media peers. Yes. My peers in white media. <laughs> yes. I'll ask them at the next convention. <laughs> I know y'all get together <laughs> every Sunday, talk about, I don't know. I don't know what y'all talk about. Diversity, mostly. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> uh, okay, so... BuzzFeed's gotten better since you were there, right? It must have been pretty white when you got there. I was the first full-time black person on editorial. How's it been watching that change there? It's like a big focus of the place. It's been amazing. It was hard at first because you especially need those people at the top. It's like you need people who are editing you who know what you're talking about and managers who understand the particular stresses you're under as like a black media person on like like. Writing about race on the internet, people need to understand the particular stresses of that. It's not just like you have a regular staff writer who's like writing about awesome dogs, but that there's like not that much at stake there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So 
at first it was a little difficult just not having that but then soon we like got a few and then there was this point where we just like rapidly increased and that was just amazing to see did you play a role in any of that yeah definitely I really made a point to every time there are like new young people of color to like talk to them to tell them what they're gonna face or things to look out for or what would those things be <sighs> little things like don't get frustrated when people don't know your references it is frustrating that you are sometimes edited by people who don't know these references when you know all their references but don't get frustrated and I'm here for you stuff like that or like how to approach criticism on Twitter like if you're just like writing about like style beauty stuff or you don't really need to have like a strategy for how you approach Twitter or like interactions with with the public but if you're writing about and trying to build a black audience for your website you need to really think about how you're approaching the way people respond to your work. How do you approach that personally? You have to not take it personally. That seems really hard. I think after a while you get used to it. Uh-huh. But I'm also the kind of person like where you could not tell me a criticism I haven't thought of myself. Like I've thought of every criticism of myself. <laughs> like I dare you to tell me something new. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to laugh. I dare you, Max. <laughs> But yeah, so it's like remembering that there's a real reason why the black community is skeptical of media. I felt that. And it's like legitimate. And then thinking through what's reasonable and what's fair and what you put a good faith effort into doing and like explaining that in a measured tone. (laughs) Don't let it escalate. You do feel some responsibility to sort of like explain yourself. I've stopped doing that. You've stopped doing that. I stopped actually pretty early. That seems good. Yeah. It's distracting. But if there's people where you're like, oh, I hear you. I hear where that pain's coming from. That's not what I meant. Here's what I'm doing. Like, there are once in a while you should be like, you should acknowledge what people are saying to your work. That's the whole point of being a writer. Like, you have the luxury of an audience. Like, don't take that for granted. Do you guys get negative stuff about the podcast? No. (laughs) You really have to work at it to be a troll for the podcast. But if you come in for like one particular guest and then mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, what, what, what are these it? black girls saying? You know, <laughs> there's a few of those. But mostly it's like really, it's really, really nice and generous. Must be kind of nice to be uh, out of like <laughs> troll city. Yeah. You were saying earlier when we were talking that you sort of had your eye on podcasting for a long time. Were there people whose styles were helpful to you? Like, One I mean, of the first ones that I liked uh, was NPR, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Back when it was like under Culture Topia and was like some small segment or something. Shout out to Linda Holmes. But I was like, hey, this is cool. I could talk about pop culture with some friends. Like the topics they topic, talk about are definitely not always my my area areas of interest. The NPR audience, you know, they lean a particular way. I feel like you in particular like do a pretty significant amount of research for those interviews. Yeah, a lot. And you do this thing which I think is helpful in interviewing, which is like letting people know that you've done a lot of research while you're talking to them. Yeah. It's helpful. Don't play games with me. Well, it's also like (laughs) I read the book, you know? (laughs) Yeah. We can talk about the book because I read it. I'm not pretending to have not read it. We're not famous enough to not have read their book yet. (laughs) Working on it. (laughs) That's a a goal to not have to read the books. Levels. Where do you see this going? What do you want to do? I really like doing the live shows that we've been doing. I've never really done anything like that, so it's been a lot of fun learning that. I love TV. It doesn't feel like it has to be the exact same thing, 
but that's definitely something I've been thinking about in like a not the immediate horizon, but like the medium horizon. <laughs> yeah, and just letting whoever will pay me to troll white people continue <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Does it feel like um, you guys can keep doing the show for a long time? Yeah, totally. I feel I still feel like I'm learning a lot. How do you think you're getting better? I think I just trust myself more and trust my instinct and trust that like what I think is interesting will be good for the audience. Yeah, do you feel pretty like connected to the audience at this point? Yeah. There are questions I'll ask where I'm like, I think our audience will be interested in this, but I don't particularly care about it. But mostly I'm like, no, I've learned what my voice is, what people like about the show, and I feel confident just following my instincts. You guys talk a lot about self-care on the show. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about self-care in the various other like media <laughs> that you can be found on. Yes. You've written a lot about it. Is self-care the same as self-help? I don't think so. Self-care would would be more like, I don't know how to deal with the world or these things are happening and I just have to think about my place in the world and how I sustain myself. Whereas self-help books are like, you are doing this wrong, you need to get to this point, and there's like this trajectory of like what kind of human you should be. Right, and if you do the thing, it'll all be figured out. It'll all magically be better. Then you're done. Like, oh my God, I remember once... I was an intern at a place that will not be named. It was one of those places where it was like definitely a possibility that you could get hired from the internship, which is rare. And I had seen one person get hired. So I was like, okay, this is definitely possible. And I like sat down with one of the people who were part of that hiring process. I was like, you know, just trying to get some advice, et cetera. And she was like, you know what I really recommend? The secret. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, the whole logic of that kind of self-help book is, like, you just need to will will things to you. There's no other reason things aren't happening for mm-hmm. you. It's like, ma'am, you can give me a job. I don't need to read <laughs> The Secret. You are the secret here. <laughs> so, yeah, I I am a reluctant fan of self-help, mostly just because I feel like I always need help. But self-care, yeah, it's important for us to talk about on the show. Why? I always want to remind people that this isn't easy not the job necessarily but racism can get you down (laughs) not a great thing for your psyche (laughs) yeah um even in like conversations about microaggressions like that phrase came from the field of psychology because a psychiatrist was like i want to see how these even these tiny things affect our psychological health so I, I sometimes I feel like posting deliberately sad things on social media so people know it's not just happy, fun times. I don't want to give this false impression of like what my life is like. But I've stopped doing sad tweets because so many of my coworkers follow me. <laughs> it just it doesn't work. Then you just like have to go. I need a burner account for exp- my sad <laughs> tweets. <laughs> but sometimes it's helpful to just let it out and have someone be like, I hear you. Even if it's just on the Internet. Another part of that is. Okay, imposter syndrome is a thing a lot of people talk about. So imposter syndrome is basically the idea that you feel like you're a fraud, you're not, you don't belong where you are. But I keep telling every woman I know that that gets better with time because once you enter these spaces, you're like, oh, I'm a fraud, but I'm less a fraud than you. (laughs) So it's also important to me not to just be like, I'm sad in this way or I'm dealing with this particular part of my depression, but also like the media industry sucks and... Uh, There are frauds everywhere. (laughs) People not trying. Yeah, there are many people with very basic effort not 
not doing any of that. So it's important to me to be like super confident in that presentation, but also talk about like the gaps. Just from the outside, that's working. Dope. <laughs> it doesn't. It you know you seem to uh, know that you're doing a good job. Yeah, I have a little, I have a little moxie. <laughs> I like that word. Sometimes I do feel like uh, we're given too much credit for certain things and not enough credit for other things. How so? People want to be like, oh, you're you're revolutionizing black media. I'm just like, yo, people are out here doing stuff. You're just not paying attention. Like you, it's like a false narrative to be like we're starting everything. Do you feel like the need to correct that false narrative? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, this is like all happened by chance. And I happen to work at this incredibly large media empire where they're letting me experiment. Which with is still scrappy, thing. though. Still scrappy. <laughs> scrappy media empire. <laughs> <laughs> I think people find that to be like self-deprecating. But I am like, no, you need to know this isn't just like I'm 24, super smart. And that's how I got here. Just clear skill. And there's no like anything in between that like facilitated all of this. Like, I moved to America, happened to move to a place with an incredibly good public school, and then I went to this incredible public uh, private institution. I didn't graduate, but I got all the benefits from it. Like, all this stuff where people act like it just happened. It's like, no, people are out here doing work, and I just happen to be at this place right now. People are trying. Yeah. <laughs> but other stuff we're not given enough credit for. Like, it's hard to talk about race in a fun and serious way. It's really hard. It's very hard. It's very difficult. I mean, I wouldn't know because I'd never try. <laughs> but yeah, like I feel like we're doing great comedy and great politics. There have been a few really good reviews, actually, that some are like they've been doing a lot of political reporting that's better than some of the political reporting I'm reading, like the standard ones. That's how I felt about that Hillary interview. Same. Thank you. <laughs> but then also like um, I think it was the Timber that had this review that was like, it's hard to tell if it's a comedy show that dabbles in politics or a cultural affairs show that doesn't take itself too seriously. That's like a perfect definition of our show. Do you feel like part of the way that you correct that false narrative about like, you guys just happen to wander into this and kill it yeah. is by bringing those people on? Yeah, totally. It really, it, it's a big part of our show is like, Look at these awesome people who are doing stuff who you all are not writing about enough or talking about enough. Do you think that's having an effect? Yeah, totally. I, I really think so. The another round bump is real is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people tell us they're, after they go on the show, they're like, oh, my God, I got all this press or like people were writing me or I got a book deal. Several guests have gotten book deals. Meanwhile, I'm out here with zero book deals. <laughs> well, watch out. You know, the uh, long form bump. <laughs> it's real. I think the reason the show works is because it's these different parts of you guys represented. There's like this very serious like political part. Yeah. There's this kind of like goofball island part, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh and then there's this part which is yeah. like you guys are both working on stuff in like a very constant and ongoing way. How do you think about doing that work on that on that third part, I guess, like putting more of that part of yourself out there? I think that's the part I work the least on, and I'm working on working on it more. <laughs> but it's just so rare to have media that's affirming. Like, what is an example of pop culture that you feel affirms you? I, that I'm, I'm hard-pressed to find examples. 
We're going to talk about that at next uh, next week's White Media Summit. <laughs> I feel like y'all got mad examples. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Y'all mad affirmed and shit. <laughs> so it's like important to me, and I know that it feels uncomfortable, but that it's work that's really important for other people. And I can tell because we get all these emails. It's like, I really had a hard conversation with my partner about my mental health, or I started therapy for the first time. Sometimes I just, I'm like, all right, pretend no one you know will ever hear this. Just say some things happen. <laughs> and that's how I gruel through it. You do kind of like get better at like telling yourself to get over yourself. <laughs> also, like my problems are mad normal. <laughs> I think I'm the first person to deal with these things. Shut up. Ugh. Get, gotta get over myself. Well, thanks. Yeah. For talking about it. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our intern this week was Courtney Harrell. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Casper, Igloo, Squarespace, and of course, our good friends at MailChimp. And thanks also to my good friends, Heaven and Tracy. That was... uh, That was a blast. They are fantastic. Go listen to the show if you have not. It's called Another Round. It is available anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We, this podcast, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.